The information presented in this program is not intended as legal, health, or nutritional advice. All topics are provided for informational purposes only and are not necessarily endorsed. Neither Light On nor its host accepts responsibility for any statements, views, or opinions presented in this episode. All rights reserved. It feels like all our heroes are coming. We all know why. Painful enough to pretend. The world itself is just one big hoax. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. All right. Today I'm joined by uh, Dr. Eben Alexander, uh, who spent uh, over 25 years as an academic neurosurgeon, graduating from the University of uh, North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He received his medical degree from Duke University School of Medicine in 1980. He spent 15 years at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, the Children's Hospital, and Harvard Medical School in Boston. That's my hometown, uh, where he taught neurosurgery. He's authored a number of uh, books on the subject of consciousness and reality, including uh, New York Times number one bestseller, Proof of Heaven, A Neurosurgeon's Journey into the Afterlife, The Map of Heaven, How Science, Religion, and Ordinary People Are Proving the Afterlife, and Living in a Mindful Universe, A Neurosurgeon's Journey into the Heart of Consciousness. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Did I miss anything? No, Patrick, I think you, you're hitting on all cylinders. So thanks for having me on. It's great to be here today. Absolutely. So uh, I, I've watched some of your presentations and uh, it's been really amazing hearing all these all these stories. And I was struck by your story in particular because you're, you know, you're a neurosurgeon, a doctor, very much a part of, uh, you know, allopathic medicine. And uh, here you are writing books about consciousness and near-death experiences. So I want to hear a little bit about your your experience for people who, who don't know and uh, how that affected, um, you know, your uh, your interpretation of sort of Western medicine and your, because you have very much, you know, standard background. And uh, how did that change your, your views? I know you mentioned in one of your presentations about, uh, you know, how everything is sort of uh, based on materialism. And so how did that change for you? Well, basically, I went through a 180 degree flip from what I used to believe, uh, which was kind of the conventional, uh, you know, Western uh, scientific viewpoint. But uh, sadly enough, the, the, you know, the main viewpoint that is uh, uh, out there for the world at large to see, promoted by science writers, et cetera, is actually an outmoded view. Uh, it is Newtonian determinism that pretends that the physical world is all that exists and that the brain must somehow create consciousness, uh, even though nobody has the remotest clue how it does so. Uh, and in fact, that conventional science would simply debunk, deny, and ignore all the evidence like my kind of experience. And yet millions of people have had these experiences that show us that we're much more than just a physical body and that the brain is not the creator of consciousness at all. It's simply a reducing valve or filter that allows us to interact with, with basically the mind of the universe. 
Uh, and so really that's what my tremendous journey uh, has uh, illustrated to me. And it's become especially clear over the 14 years since my coma uh, that uh, I've worked with hundreds of other scientists around the world. And the reality is there's a new paradigm emerging. And that's, that's where you know, I'm very excited to, to share my own experience and kind of the implications of it because it tri uh, contributes dramatically to this emerging worldview that basically points out the primacy of mind, that uh, the mental layer of the universe is something that's primordial in kind of information and in our ability to interact with the universe. And this is where you can start to explain realities like free will uh, and things like mind over matter is exemplified through placebo effect, uh, which is more than just a sugar pill fixing a headache, but much more a reflection of medical science's acknowledgement that mind has tremendous influence over matter and our emergent reality. But you can move well beyond placebo effect uh, in, in clinical medicine uh, into the world of spontaneous remission of, for example, Noetic Sciences um, has a book out that, that uh, promotes 3,500 cases of people curing their own cancer, infection, what have you, beyond any medical intervention, uh, simply through kind of spiritual aspects of self, through power of prayer, through uh, regulation of, of kind of emotions and strengthening positive emotions, things like that. Uh, so really, it's a revolution in science that brings to the fore uh, the notion that sentient beings can influence their unfolding reality. Now, of course, many of us assume that, but that flies in the face of materialist science, uh, which pretends that there is no such thing as consciousness beyond its being an illusion of the chemical reactions and electron fluxes in the brain. And that's where I think of, you know, my journey and uh, my interaction with scientists around the world uh, is leading to a whole new, a far more promising future uh, in which uh, sentient beings and humanity at large really takes a much greater responsibility for stewardship of this planet. So it's a really big package, but it has to do with once and for all dismissing that bleak and paltry fiction of materialism that pretends that you know existence is birth to death, nothing more, uh, that our conscious awareness is a complete illusion, that we have no free will. I mean, those are all very damaging concepts, and yet that's what has ruled our world uh, really for the last century or two. And it is time to grow up. And it is modern science of consciousness in the form of quantum physics, uh, the harder problem of consciousness and neuroscience, uh, the difficulties of what's known as the binding problem in philosophy of mind, and all the evidence for non-local consciousness uh, in the world of parapsychology, things like um, uh, like telepathy, uh, remote viewing, uh, you know, all of these are, are basically topics that emerge naturally in the science of consciousness in the modern era. And we need to let go of that primitive uh, and false kind of Newtonian determinism that still holds sway over so much of the uh, of the world. And this quantum informed science of consciousness is what really takes us to the next level. And my own personal experience in coma due to a severe case of gram-negative bacterial meningoencephalitis back in November 2008 was my own catalyst for coming to a deeper understanding of this uh, emerging reality. Wow, yeah, it's it's 
interesting because there's there's so much even in the medical literature, mainstream medical literature about these things, like you mentioned, the placebo, nocebo effect. I think there's even been um, surgeries that like fake surgeries that have happened and people got better. Right. Um, wh- but they seem to sort of like skip over that stuff or not really let it into the sphere. What, what, do, what do you think it is about that or why? Well, I think uh, for one thing, they don't understand it. They have, uh, uh, and they don't know enough about the facts of these cases. So they hear about a case like mine and they simply say, oh, that's impossible. We know the brain creates consciousness. So all, all that Alexander experienced was a hallucination or dream. But if they study the, the book Proof of Heaven or especially the medical case report, it was written on my medical records and came out in September 2018 in the Journal of Nervous and Mental Diseases authored by Dr. Serbi Khanna, Lauren Moore, and Bruce Grayson, that case report makes two things very, very obvious about my case. One is the documented objective evidence for damage to my brain through neurologic exams, scans, lab values, et cetera, is so astonishing there that you, you, you conclude that there's no way that brain could have uh, harbored any kind of dream or hallucination much less the most profound, detailed, memorable, transformative, uh, uh, life-changing experience of my entire existence. How did that happen when, as those three doctors pointed out in the medical record, my brain was uh, severely incapacitated to a point where it could not have harbored anything but the most, other than the most uh, primitive uh, kind of uh, proto-elements of consciousness, not this incredible experience that I have. That's one major point of the case uh, case report. The other is, uh, how do you explain this recovery? How do you explain that over two months' time, I had a full return of memory and a complete return to health, when in fact, my doctors had estimated during my illness that I started with a 10% chance of recovery, but by the end of seven days in coma on three powerful intravenous antibiotics on a ventilator, not showing any signs of neurologic improvement, uh, it was time to let me go and let nature take its course, stop antibiotics and let me die. That was the result of a family conference on day seven of coma. And it was soon after that, that I started coming back to this world, which was a real shock to my doctors. But even more shocking was beyond that, the, uh, uh, you know, complete recovery of memories over about two months. Uh, That's really kind of inexplicable. And I think that's a probably, you know, where we start with all this. And that's what I was faced with. How could I explain this miraculous recovery that was unprecedented in the medical literature? And in fact, when the peer review editors of the Journal of Nervous and Mental Diseases challenged the three uh, doctors who wrote the case report on my medical records, they said exactly that. This case is unprecedented. It's absurd. How do you explain somebody this ill from grand negative uh, meningitis to end up uh, having a full recovery. And uh, that's a real shocker. And so you need explanations for these medical facts around my case. And that's where the whole thing starts to come together. Because in fact, what the three doctors told the peer reviewers is it was because of my near-death experience that I was rewarded with this uh, unprecedented, uh, miraculous healing uh, that I went through. And and so that's where we really should all take more interest in what is this kind of uh, story and this kind of understanding tell us about our own abilities to bring ourselves into wholeness and healing. 
it's interesting. I've talked to a few people now and um, kind of hung out on the NDE boards and, and spoken to some people. And, you know, it seems to be a recurring thing that that people have this very, you know, their experiences give them this sort of healing effect and, and even new abilities sort of they're able to like speak new languages or do th do art that they've never done before. Uh, so it is very it's fascinating. Um, but I want to hear a little bit about your what your experience was was actually like and um you know is it this vivid thing that that people talk about are you can you be certain that uh um it, it wasn't some kind of hallucination i mean we know about what you just said about the the brain so it seems unlikely um but what you know what did it mean to you and what was it what was the actual experience like well i'll um i'll, I'll start by saying that uh you know, when I first woke up, my brain was so damaged from all this, I did not even recognize loved ones at the bedside, my mother, my sisters, my sons. Wow. And that's because I'd had a very profound amnesia during my entire near-death experience. And that is an unusual feature. Um, but I think uh, near-death experiences are first and foremost tailored for the soul that has them. And when I look back on my experience in my life, the experience I had was the perfect catalyst to come to the deeper understanding that I was seeking. Uh, and that's that's a very important point, is that uh, the qualities of an NDE are always there first and foremost for the experiencer uh, to have their life transformed in a positive direction that kind of aligns with their soul growth. Now, to get right to your question of what that experience was like, Okay, given that we've established that an unusual feature was the amnesia, it all started in what I call the earthworm's eye view, a very primitive course, kind of unresponsive realm. Uh, it was like being in dirty jello. I had um, no body awareness during any part of this journey, but I did have kind of an awareness of perception, of, uh, of feeling things. Uh, you know, all my kind of senses and beyond were activated to kind of perceive what was going on in this, in this realm. Uh, and it was kind of murky and foreboding, like being in dirty jello, like roots and blood vessels all around me. Uh, and yet I felt no fear. And, and that was partially due to that amnesia. I had no expectation. This was just existence. So I accepted it as it was uh, without any kind of value judgment whatsoever. Uh, the good news is I didn't stay there forever. I was rescued from that realm that I call the earthworm's eye view. Uh, by this slowly spinning white light that came towards me like uh, uh, a beautiful uh, uh, kind of clear light that had fine silvery and golden tendrils off of it. And it was slowly spinning. And the other thing that was amazing was it was associated with a musical melody. Uh, and to me, all of the kind of spiritual transitions in my journey had associated music. And it was by remembering the notes of that music that I was able to conjure up these various portals at various stages in the journey, because I would spontaneously tumble back down to that earthworm I view, to that primitive starting point. But I quickly learned that by remembering the musical notes of the melody, I could conjure up that light portal that would take me up into this rich, ultra-real gateway valley. I called it um, you know, the gateway valley because it was not my final destination, as you'll hear in just a moment, but it was simply a gateway and it appeared to be this beautiful meadow surrounded by mountains and forests uh sparkling uh, waterfalls into crystal blue pools um i was a speck of awareness on a butterfly wing there were millions of other butterflies looping and spiraling in these vast formations colors beyond the rainbow 
Uh, below us in this meadow were thousands of beings, dancing, joy, merriment, uh, lots of festivities. I remember children playing, dogs jumping, and just an incredible party going on. Uh, and when I wrote it all up weeks later, I said that those were souls between lives. That was kind of my interpretation of what I witnessed in, the, in that realm. But it was also an intersection where one could perceive, you know, the four-dimensional space-time of our material physical world, but also see that there was uh, this a huge kind of ordering in the mental realm uh, that allowed us to discern information, also have influence. Now, in that gateway valley, uh, an important thing to stress is it was much more real than this world, much more detailed, vibrant, alive, meaningful, powerful, engaging, every bit of that. It makes this world look dreamlike and murky by comparison, this material world. Uh, and that's what how you know many near-death experiencers describe that realm, uh, those spiritual realms, as being uh, much more real than this one. In fact, the way I put it, uh, when I, I tried to describe all this to my doctors when I first woke up, and of course they were surprised I was even coming back, that my recovery was proceeding at all. That was a shock to them. But they told me you can forget about it because the dying brain plays all kinds of tricks. Now at that time, in the early weeks of recovering, I had not recovered any of my memories of neuroscience knowledge, cosmology, physics, all my scientific knowledge, religious beliefs, all that kind of stuff was still to emerge over the next few months as I slowly recovered uh, in more complete fashion than before coma, many of the memories uh, of my life, including semantic knowledge, et cetera. Uh, and so what I told my oldest son, two days after getting out of the hospital, it was the day before Thanksgiving, 2008, he was majoring in neuroscience in college at the time. He had been there during a lot of my coma with family members holding my hand, trying to keep me to this world. Uh, and of course, when he came back from school, after I got out of the hospital, he gave me a big hug that first morning when he drove back. And he said later that it was like there was a light shining within me, that I was far more present than I'd ever been. But mm. what I told him, but based on what my doctors had told me, that it had to be a trick of the dying brain, I said it was way too real to be real. That's kind of the way I interpreted it and expressed it. To me, it was shockingly real. And that's part of the reason for that is, uh, you know, this whole idea of ineffability. You hear how these experiences are not really uh, something you can describe with our earthly language. Uh, right. And that's because our language is very good for describing a trip to Disney World, but it certainly fails miserably at describing this kind of profound spiritual journey to realms where, for example, your entire life can flash before your eyes uh, in a life review which is described in more than a half of, of near-death experiences in some series. Um, and yet, um, for me, uh, I, given my amnesia, I witnessed this whole thing of life reviews and, in fact, reincarnation in these vast images that came at the next level. Uh, and the next level was one where here I am in this beautiful gateway valley. Uh, I realize I'm not alone in that. Uh, there was this beautiful young woman on the butterfly wing. Those who read my book, Proof of Heaven, will realize how important she is in the story. Uh, and it was four months after my coma when I learned her identity, finally, that beautiful woman who accompanied me on the butterfly wing. Uh, that's what really helped me to come to truly grok the reality of the story. But anyway, meanwhile, back in my uh, coma, uh, there was just this beautiful sense of this uh, spiritual guide who was with me on the butterfly wing. 
her message to me. She never had to say a word, but it was delivered to me, uh, you know, direct as a telepathic, emotional, mental shared experience. Her message to me, which I believe is the central message I was to bring back to this world, you are deeply loved and cherished forever. You have nothing to fear. You are deeply cared for. And uh, I cannot tell you how uh, absolutely astonishing and re refreshing that message was to me when it when it all occurred. Uh, it was absolutely uh, uh, beautiful. I mean, it, it, it gives me chills to even just remember in this moment the beauty of that message from her and how comforting it was when up to that point, uh, everything had really been kind of confusing in my trying to understand that world that I was thrust into. Now, it turns out, though, that uh, that, that was just, as I said, a, a gateway in my journey. This was not the ending point. And I remember uh, witnessing all of that uh, four-dimensional space-time of that material realm collapsing down. All of the different ordering of causality in the spiritual realm of the Gateway Valley um, uh, that order, that's ordered by a totally different kind of uh, uh, temporal mechanism. There is what I call deep time or meta time that is allows for one to witness all the events of their life in a life review and realize that they're reliving those events. It's not a remembering. These are not vague uh, sepia tinted memories. This is a reliving of events. That's what you find in, uh, you know, almost half of near-death experiencers report that uh, there are vivid reliving of events, not just remembering. And about three quarters of near-death experiencers say that in fact that life review uh, is from the perspective of others. In other words, it's very much like the golden rule is written into the fabric of the universe to treat others as you would like to be treated. Because mm -hmm. in the life review, if you've been busy handing out pain and suffering to others, you have to feel that. You feel the impact of your actions and even your thoughts on others from their emotional perspective during the life review. It's a beautiful example of how we're sharing the dreams of the one mind and that this notion of self that we carry with us in living in these bodies is in many ways a fiction that supports the drama to unfold of that interactive, uh, you know, of all of our fellow beings, how we learn and teach each other through our actions, through living these lives. That is what is going on here. Uh, and to realize that ultimately is, is near-death experiencers will tell you, going back thousands of years across all experiences and continents, is that what becomes apparent in that life review and in uh, the near-death experience is the power of that love, that God force of love. Something like 90% of near-death experiences, and this certainly includes those who were previously atheists or agnostic or what have you, but more than 90% of near-death experiencers come back believing that there's a God of some form out there. Now, when I came back from my journey, I knew that that being that I encountered in the core realm, which was the next level of my uh, engagement with this, uh, that infinitely loving God force was the source of, of our very conscious awareness. Uh, and I also came to realize, as uh, the majority of near-death experiences will explain, is that our consciousness is bound through those binding forces of love. And then in that realm, what rules is unconditional love of the creator for the creation, something we can all share as co-creators of that emergent reality. And uh, for me, that uh, uh, meant that I came back in, in the book, Proof of Heaven, 
uh, I labeled that deity, that beautiful, infinite, loving force that's so apparent at the core of the universe uh, as Aum. And that was the sound I heard, the resonance in that eternity and infinity. Uh, and that's what I called it because I recognized that whether you want to use the word God, Allah, Brahman, Vishnu, Jehovah, Yahweh, Great Spirit, whatever word you try and use will not own it. Uh, you know, that force of, of infinite love that binds us all is so fundamental. It is something that really um, empowers us uh, to come to a much higher level. But it's that lesson of NDEs that I think is so important, the one of love, kindness, compassion, mercy, forgiveness, etc. And that's really been the most fundamental lesson I've learned. Now, to kind of finish off my my journey, what, what would happen is in that gateway valley with all that beautiful kind of earthly, but also spiritual scenery, uh, those angelic choirs above these whooping orbs of, of, of kind of pure spiritual energy, leaving uh, golden trails against that blue black velvety sky. But these orbs were emanating chants and anthems, hymns that would just thunder through my awareness, this incredible power of love and of belonging and of oneness and of kind of being in one spiritual home, feeling totally at one with all of that, uh, an incredible experience. But as I saw all of that collapsing down, including that layer of deep time in the spiritual realm, and deep time, of course, is what allows for your entire life to be present in that moment, in that now moment, uh, as you reunite with higher soul, souls of departed loved ones, and next incarnations, all that kind of thing was made very clear to me in the next level of my journey. It's what I call the core. Uh, and to get there, I saw all of this collapsing down until the entire universe throughout eternity was this complex oversphere that was there to serve as kind of a, a messaging uh, system and uh, kind of a teaching tool. Uh, and in that core realm, I was told, you're not here to stay. You'll be going back, but we'll teach you many things. Now, that was those were the words that I applied to that message when I wrote it all up weeks later. But when it all happened, it was just a very natural, organic flow of information and soul journey and understanding. And in that core realm, uh, again, given my amnesia, which was ongoing, to have no memory of Evan Alexander's life, uh, I did witness uh, life reviews uh, and reincarnation in this beautifully profound set of visions. One, the flying fish vision, which I won't go into, but a more complex one that occurred later, the Indra's net vision, uh, where I saw all these interwoven threads. It was clear to me that our soul lines are all involved in this evolution of consciousness itself. And contrary to uh, some religious uh, conceptions of reincarnation, the vision that comes out of the study of near-death experiences and related um, phenomenal experiences of human beings is one that is filled with grace and the idea of transformation, evolution, and growth. We're here to learn and teach. And all of that was apparent to me in this Ender's Net vision, uh, which I saw in that core realm of interwoven threads. And the threads were almost like the breathing, the inhale and exhale of our existence, of incarnation in between lives, incarnation between lives, but all in this progression towards a golden center of this uh, this network that I saw, a higher dimensional network that really was showing us uh, evolving uh, as a sentient uh, species, homo sapiens, finally becoming wise. Uh, now, it turns out that as much as I was 
told in the core, you're not here to stay. I'd come to believe that by conjuring up the musical notes, the melody, I could always re-enter these spiritual realms when I would spontaneously tumble back down to that earthworm eye view. But there came a time when that was not true. And what they were telling me, uh, the promise that I was not there to stay was real. And that's when I recognized I was down in this kind of lowly realm where it had all begun. Uh, and I was surrounded by thousands of beings going off into the distance, many with, with heads bowed, some holding candles. And this murmuring energy coming up from them was very energizing and surprising to me because that murmuring energy that seemed to come from their verbalizations was one that brought with it the great comfort and sense of being in a spiritual home that I'd first experienced in the Gateway Valley and in the core realm on those early passages. And I called that in my writings weeks later as I was writing all this up, surrounding you know the thousands of beings going off in the distance, the power of prayer. That's what I was feeling and witnessing full bore with this kind of connection uh, to the lowest uh, kind of spiritual realms and earthly realms. But through that mental realm and the power of prayer and love was welcoming me back. Uh, and it was at this point that I saw six faces that would bubble up out of the muck. Um, and those faces were very important because five of them were people who were physically present in the ICU room the last 24 hours I was in coma. So in many ways, they served as what's called a veridical time anchor showing me that the vast majority of my coma experience had to happen between days one and four, possibly days one and five of my seven day coma. And all that timing is explained in detail in the book, Proof of Heaven. Uh, but it was really the sixth face that I saw, and that was of a 10 year old boy. Uh, that's what drew me back to this world. And as much as throughout this entire experience, I had thought this can continue, it can cease, it doesn't matter. When I saw the sixth face, all of a sudden everything mattered. And it was probably the only moment of true fear I felt in the entire journey. Uh, and that was because it was day seven of coma. Uh, the doctors had just held the conference where they said I'd gone from 10% chance of coma of survival down to a 2% chance with no chance of recovery. And my youngest son, Bond, 10 years old at the time, heard that news and realized things were much worse than, than he'd been told. He ran down the hallway into ICU bed 10, where I was lying there uh, on my ventilator, on my um, hospital bed, eyes taped shut. He pulled open my eyelids, one eye looking over there, one over there, neither pupil working. Uh, any of those uh, in your audience familiar with medical principles will know that's a horrible scene. Um, I promise you I did not see him with my eyes or hear him with my ears, but somehow this pleading message from him was getting through. And he's pleading with me, Daddy, you're going to be okay. Daddy, you're going to be okay. I didn't understand the words. I didn't understand my relationship to him. But I knew that I had this tremendous responsibility to come back for that soul. And it was that kind of binding force of love that led me back to this world. And uh, it was soon thereafter that I was opening my eyes, fighting the ventilator. The doctors were shocked at my kind of sudden awakening, which they had never expected to happen. Uh, they pulled out the breathing tube. And although I uttered the words, thank you, uh, I do not remember much of anything for the next 36 hours. I was kind of in and out of a crazy, paranoid, delusional, psychotic nightmare. But as I point out in the book, Proof of Heaven, the memories of that nightmare are very different from the memories of deep coma, because the memories of deep coma are as sharp uh, and crisp and detailed to me today as if they'd all happened yesterday. Whereas the memories of that 36 hour nightmare 
uh, after being uh, removed from the ventilator, uh, you know, which is a time when my family saw, yes, I was defying the doctor's exp expectations by waking up, but oh my gosh, it was just horrifying what they were seeing because my brain was still horribly impacted by this. Uh, and it was clear that uh, I was far, far, far from a recovered state. Uh, but, but the recovery did come very rapidly. It came over the next two months, really, to a point where my memories were complete, even better than they had been before coma. And I discuss all that in the third book, Living in a Mindful Universe, which was co-written with my partner, Karen Newell. Um, but anyway, that's that's the kind of main gist of the story. And I spent the 14 years since then really working with other scientists, trying to come to a deeper understanding of what these kind of journeys tell us about the nature of reality and of our sentience and of how we uh, can interact with the universe at large. What was your, did you have a religious leaning before your experience? And did that change due to your experience? Well, I would I grew up, uh, my adoptive father was very influential in my life. Uh, he had grown up during the depression. He was a combat surgeon in the second world war. Uh, his father had been a general surgeon in Eastern Tennessee. He would take him to the Presbyterian church every Sunday of his life. I still have the pocket Bible that my dad had uh, during his two and a half year tour uh, in the Pacific theater during World War II. And I think that it was his strong belief in God that brought him back from that relatively unscathed. Now, like many in the uh, children of the 60s and 70s, like myself, I grew up knowing that science is the pathway to truth. I remember getting in a very animated discussion with my Methodist uh, sixth grade teacher during my confirmation hearings about the Big Bang and about the real scientific origin of the universe. So I was always, you know, of a scientific mind, but I made the mistake like so many in our society of believing that conventional materialist science as it's worshiped today, and I do not use that term lightly, hmm. uh, is a faith-based religion that actually has less to support it than some of the faith-based religions. It remains Absolutely. a very yeah. dogmatic, Newtonian, deterministic view uh, of the world where, um, for example, ions and ion channels uh, in the neurons of the brain and uh, neurotransmitters and synaptic vesicles all behave according to purely uh, Newtonian deterministic principles. This was shown to be false by John C. Eccles, uh, Nobel laureate in neurophysiology, um, you know, back in the, with work he did back in the 60s. Uh, and in a book he published in the 1980s, he made it crystal clear that the energy considerations of the brain allow completely for kind of a mind over matter deterministic uh, model to, to, to reign in supreme and that Henry Stapp and other quantum physicists have argued for that. Um, and the reality is that uh, the brain-mind connection is right at the heart of all this. And these neurons are functioning as completely quantum computers where a top-down causality from the mental layer of the universe ends up making perfect sense. So in other words, the kind of conventional scientific uh, knowledge of today, uh, most people, you know, assume our brain creates consciousness, our existence is birth to death, nothing more. All of that is false, according to a more quantum informed version of science, uh, looking at the mind-brain connection and the nature of reality uh, in the modern era. And I think this is especially important to point out, given that the Nobel Prize in Physics in 2022 was given to three physicists who 
basically from the late 1970s onward, were able to demonstrate that entanglement or spooky action in a distance is absolutely real. And, you know, to physicists, they may keep looking and looking and looking for what that entanglement involves. But to those of us living in the real world and trying to assess the mind-brain connection and the nature of reality from the viewpoint of, of modern science, uh, it's crystal clear that that entanglement has direct implications for the reality of the mental layer of the universe. And we can look at the brain as a filter that allows primordial consciousness, that primordial mind in which all of reality exists to emerge and for us to actually play some role in it. That's why things like placebo effect extended through spontaneous remission and especially into miraculous healing and near-death experiences is all, are all examples of mind over matter in very powerful and practical ways uh, for how they influence our existence. But it will radically transform us from that bleak and paltry fiction of materialism, pretending the brain creates consciousness, our existence is birth to death, nothing more, and trying to deny the reality of the soul. And the soul is an eternal representation of who we are. And we're all kind of interacting with other souls in this process of learning and teaching and growth, which is essentially uh, the evolution of all consciousness. I think science can certainly support um you know, can even support some of that uh, non-materialist uh, uh, belief. Uh, for example, you know, I've read about them discovering uh, uh, piezoelectrical crystals in the brain. I think it was the pineal gland. Um, so there's, there's a lot of really interesting stuff. I've come to believe that we're sort of trans uh, transducers, right, From of, of like a higher source. It makes more sense to me. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of that stuff. What what's your belief about the the pineal gland? Have you you know as a neurosurgeon, you must have uh, some experience with that. What do you think about it? Well, I do, and I think the pineal gland, uh, from my perspective, just like any material structure, you try and attribute something as gigantic as consciousness uh, uh, to, uh, is not really playing the role that materialist science uh, pretends it does. Uh, the reason people focused on the pineal gland initially had a lot to do with Rene Descartes, finding mm -hmm. it to be the single kind of midline structure that wasn't duplicated bilaterally uh, in the nervous system. And therefore, he thought maybe that's where the soul intersects with, you know, the brain and mind and all of this is brought together in the pineal. Uh, I do not think the pineal plays that kind of role. And of course, in the modern era, People get all excited about dimethyltryptamine, DMT, yeah. <laughs> uh, which by some studies uh, can be secreted from the pineal. But I would say that to, that to me is all uh, a bunch of noise that's not really relevant to the bigger, uh, bigger issues. But I think what we're really talking about here is the philosophical position of how do you relate brain and mind? Uh, you know, I grew up and was trained under the notion of materialism or physicalism. That is, that somehow the brain had to create consciousness out of purely physical matter. Uh, and what I've come to realize is that is completely false. That in fact, the thing that exists is consciousness and that the brain, the body and the physical universe are actually emergent from the mental layer and, and from consciousness itself. And that's really what makes most sense. That's where the science of consciousness is currently headed. Um, in other words, it looks at that whole spectrum of possibilities to explain the mind-brain relationship, which begins with that materialism or physicalism, the brain creating consciousness, where you have no room for mind as an independent thing. 
And that has been so heavily disproven by modern science of consciousness that it's not even worthy of discussion anymore. Um, however, you then have a whole host of dualisms. Uh, dualities are different ways of looking at the brain and mind as interactive in some fashion. And there's several different philosophical scientific models for how dualisms could work. Uh, but then at the far end of the spectrum, you get to idealism. Idealism is the notion that uh, the mind and the mental layer is ultimately what is responsible for all that emerges in these lower layers in the material world. Uh, and I would say for anyone who's really paying attention to the deeper, broader discussion, as we, as we do in our book, Living in a Mindful Universe, which fully integrates uh, in a multidisciplinary fashion, uh, these concepts of uh, consilience, that uh, things like quantum uh, physics, uh, the entanglement phenomenon in particular, uh, and then uh, non-local consciousness as witnessed through parapsychology, like all the evidence for telepathy, all the evidence for remote viewing, for distance healing, power of prayer, all those kind of things, uh, and combine that with um, um, uh, philosophy of mind and, and the uh, difficulty in, in trying to explain the apparent unity of consciousness within an individual. Uh, all of these contribute uh, to dismantling the simplistic fiction of of materialism and with it, its false sense of separation, which has led to so much damage in our modern world. Uh, this kind of idea from science that we're separate uh, beings and that especially from Darwinian evolution, that we're in competition with each other. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that, that should have been left behind in the 19th century, that kind of survival of the fittest because most biologists in the 20th century came to realize that it's uh, um, cooperation and collaboration that leads to success, not competition. Mm. Uh, and then, of course, the false sense of separation of a materialist, reductive materialist science is very damaging, especially when it impacts our economic and social systems uh, and lets us believe that we're in this competition with each other in kind of zero-sum game as opposed to a quantum-informed vision of consciousness, which, which acknowledges the abundance that we share and the fact that we need to be responsible uh, as the sentient beings on this planet to help guide uh, the evolution and the uh, proper use of resources, all of it done with a more unified, holistic view of who we are and how we're all in this together. Uh, and that's where I think uh, a lot of this kind of discussion of NDEs and what they're pointing out about that binding force of love is so important. And you would ask me about my religious beliefs. I'm sorry, I've gone off on tremendous tangents. That's okay. Uh, but, the, but the reality is I've come to realize that I think that in many ways, religion should be unified around the concepts of kindness, compassion, mercy, acceptance, when necessary, forgiveness, uh, that, uh, as I said, 90% of NDEers come back, no matter if they were atheists or agnostic before, believing in, in, in God, in this loving force that they've witnessed during their, their near-death experience. And that's where I think the, the modern world should take its lead, uh, is people who've been there, especially when the science supports the reality of all this. And for those who really want documentation of that scientific proof, I can uh, lead you to a source, and that is uh, bigelowinstitute.org. It turns out that Robert Bigelow was uh, is a uh, um, uh, aerospace uh, uh, entrepreneur. Uh, he had lost his wife. His son had committed suicide. So in 2021, he asked a question of the scientific community. He put it out there as a essay contest. 
what is the best scientific evidence for the continuation of conscious awareness beyond permanent bodily death? Asking that question, they received more than a thousand applications of people who wanted to participate. They made it clear that you had to demonstrate at least five years of rigorous scientific effort in investigating the afterlife question. In that context, they received 204 essays. Uh, originally, they were going to give out three monetary prizes, uh, but with the quality of the essays being so great, they ended up giving out 29 uh, monetary prizes. And I would encourage each and every one of your listeners to go start reading those essays. They're available for free to the reading public, bigelowinstitute.org. Just go there and start reading. Start with Jeffrey Mishlaw's first place essay, and you'll quickly realize the scientific evidence for the afterlife and even for reincarnation is so overwhelming that uh, it's beyond a reasonable doubt that it is fully supported by the empirical evidence. Uh, and then you have essays from all different directions. Uh, some are purely uh, scientific, uh, like a Pim Van Lommel's second place essay, beautiful essay of his prolonged experience as a Dutch cardiologist with uh, near-death experiencers, et cetera. And he has a profound knowledge of the implications of quantum physics, unconsciousness. Or read Bernardo Castrop's uh, excellent entry um, where he simply uses uh, facts available in modern materialist science, uh, including entanglement, including quantum physics, and makes a very compelling argument for the reality of objective idealism. Uh, it's similar in many ways to the multidisciplinary arguments we make for objective idealism uh, in our book, Living in a Mindful Universe. I think it's important to point out to anybody who's really paying attention to this bigger discussion is idealism, which is just showing the reality of the mental layer of the universe, isn't really going far enough. A better philosophical term for the answer is evolutionary panentheism, uh, which is simply the idea that that God force, that primordial mind that we discuss in such detail in Living in a Mindful Universe, uh, is something that enables all of our consciousness and all of emergent reality exists in that consciousness. Uh, and this is what really brings free will back to the human endeavor uh, and certainly allows us uh, to take much better responsibility for our own health, healing, and wholeness, as well as that for the world at large. Yeah, it seems like such a more... Uh, complex and just a way bigger discussion than we're really allowed to have, in my opinion, with with religion, you know, all the various organized religions. I think that there's truth in all those things, but they're just such a they're a tiny element of of the the broader picture. Right. Um, that's why I think, that, like you said, you know, like the sort of moral elements are are great and it's important to to extract those and, and unify with them. Uh, so I think that's a that's a fantastic message. Um I think I think that's a very important point. You know, religions have had more than 5,000 years to kind of teach us the golden rule, treat others as you would like to be treated, uh, which is, has an expression in every major religion there is. And also golden rule is there in non-religious uh, kind of moral and ethical systems. Uh, and that's the deep message of near-death experiences. And that's the deep message of this emerging science of consciousness. And I think it is important for, you know, uh, some consolidation of human understanding around this. Important to realize, you know, religions often will trumpet, you know, scripture thousands of years old and ideologies from the past, where a tremendous amount of the fuel 
that is um, energizing this current growth and understanding in the science of consciousness has to do with personal experience in the here and now of human beings having these experiences. And the, the best news is that you don't have to have a near-death experience to come to all the knowledge that I have about this. As a sentient conscious being, you can explore your own consciousness. And that is something that I've been doing on a regular basis for the last 11 or 12 years. Uh, meditation, uh, going within. For me, it's a form of centering prayer. And this is where all of us can start to come into greater answers about these uh, deep and profound questions. You come to realize that your little ego mind, you know, so many of us identify with that voice in our head as who we are. I love how Michael Singer puts it in his book, The Untethered Soul. He calls a voice in your head, your annoying roommate. And that's, <laughs> do not forget that. That little voice in your head is nothing more than a parlor trip. Uh, but the deep, profound mystery of your conscious awareness goes far deeper than that. And that is something that you can explore uh, through meditation. And what I learned uh, beginning about two years after my coma, I'd read 150 books since my coma on physics, cosmology, consciousness, brain and mind, uh, spiritual experience, et cetera, trying to make sense of it. But I came to realize the only way to truly make sense of my experience was to explore my own consciousness. And that's what I've done uh, every day for the last uh, decade plus. I use sacred acoustics. That's a form of binaural beat brainwave entrainment. I was first attracted to that concept two years post-coma in reading about binaural beats, uh, which, a, which is a phenomenon first described in the mid-1800s uh, by a Prussian physicist. He noted that when you put a pure tone in one ear, slightly different tone in the other ear, for example, 100 hertz or cycles per second in one ear, 104 hertz in this ear, would give me a 4 hertz signal in the brain, and nobody knew where it came from. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. But it was the arithmetic difference between the two input frequencies. And sacred acoustics, uh, you can go to sacredacoustics.com to learn a whole lot more about all of that. Um, but that is a form of brainwave entrainment that I've found to be incredibly powerful uh, in this kind of mission of discovery. And so it's really all about personal experience and what we can learn through meditation, uh, prayer, going within, uh, and then what we bring back to live our lives. Because in fact, uh, you know, the profound gift of this life and this existence is about growth and transformation. But that all occurs here in this physical realm. It doesn't occur so much in the, in the spiritual realms, even though we can gain uh, tremendous insight by spending some time in meditation. 
But ultimately, uh, it's what we do in living these lives, how we treat ourselves and treat others, um, that makes the big difference. And that's where I would say my NDE offered me a 180 degree flip from the mistakes and, and falsehoods of materialism and the notion the brain creates consciousness into a much richer recognition of a reality uh, that honors the free will of sentient beings uh, and really indicates that we can dramatically influence our own lives and the whole trajectory of human destiny through this awakening to a much richer reality of a shared kind of common goal, a shared oneness of mind, uh, and that we're all bound together through those forces of love, kindness, compassion, and mercy. Absolutely. Uh, and I think it, it's, there's an important conversation there as far as the, the acoustics. It, you know, I, I, I fully believe in what Tesla said about frequency, energy, vibration. I think that that is really the key to the universe. And you see it so much in every aspect of, of all of this. And it, it just reminded me of my uh, my grandfather was suffering from Alzheimer's and he, he had deteriorated to the point where he was catatonic, essentially. And uh, until we put, uh, you know, earpods in his in his ears and played his favorite song and he sprung to life like he was like, you know, like you had just picked up the strings of a puppet, like, you know. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's really something to that. It really is. It really is sacred. For sure. Well, that's beautiful that you bring that up about your your grandfather. Um there is a, it's one of the main examples in, in clinical neuroscience that the brain does not create consciousness is something called terminal lucidity or paradoxical lucidity. Uh, and uh, there are more than 100 cases in the literature of this happening. And I'm, I'm sure it's uh, more common than that. It just seems to be underreported. Uh, but it often happens in people who have been demented for a long time. Sometimes people have been psychotic and demented for decades. And yet at the very end of their life, as they're approaching physical death, death of the physical body, they come back to life and they are alive. And, and you're right, music can sometimes be a catalyst that allows that kind of thing to happen. Uh, but it's astonishing to see, and, and I'm aware of cases of it happening in people whose brains had been more than half replaced with metastatic cancer, who had been deeply mm -hmm. comatose for months and yet, as they approach death, they wake up, become very interactive with loved ones at the bedside, often at a time when they're experiencing souls of departed loved ones who left the physical plane, who are coming to escort them over. In fact, that very thing happened in my own mother, uh, who was age 99, my adoptive mother, when she was passing over in April of 2019. Mm -hmm. And uh, Karen and I were actually giving a, a, a meditation a play shop uh, in conjunction with William Peters who is uh, renowned for his work with Shared Crossings. Uh, William Peters and the Shared Crossing Project is uh, based in Santa Barbara, but it's all about helping people to get into a kind of a state, a mental state with their loved ones to enhance the possibility of having a shared death experience. That is sharing in the, in the near-death experience of someone who's actually dying, witnessing even a full-blown life review and then coming back to this world. But in that setting, uh, giving that uh, workshop, my own mother uh, had a respiratory illness at age 99, uh, became unresponsive the last four days of her life. And it turns out that two days before she passed, I wish I'd known this at the time, but she woke up in the middle of the night, 2.30 in the morning, and she woke her nurse up. And her nurse said it was impossible for her to get out of bed, but somehow she had done that. 
And she woke the nurse up and said, my mother's here. Call my children. Call my children. She's really here. And when I heard that, you know, unfortunately, a few days later, when she lapsed back into unresponsiveness, I knew that meant she was very close. When people are seeing their loved ones, uh, it's not wishful thinking. That is their loved ones actually there to escort them over. In fact, Gregory Shushan, who's written about uh, NDEs and primitive cultures, has written extensively about how the most common feature of near-death experiences across all cultures is having loved ones appear to escort us over at that time of transition. But I love how your grandfather had this beautiful kind of awakening that was uh, catalyzed through music. Uh, and I can tell you that the same kind of thing happens in many other settings as people are approaching death. But it completely defies the materialist model that pretends that the brain is somehow the ultimate producer of consciousness and supports that the brain is more of a filter that allows expression of that primordial mind. Absolutely. So I have to ask you about, there. I've spoken to a couple of people now with different views. There's also like a, a bit of a darker view of sort of ND uh, experiences. Um, one indiv individual I spoke to uh, discussed mostly hellish experiences. And uh, I spoke to uh, Howdy McCoskey, who wrote a book, uh, I believe it's called Exit the Cave, who believes that this is essentially a bad copy. Of the, our Earth is a bad copy. And uh, the, um, coming back here is a, it's a reincarnation trap. And the people we experience are tailored to as sort of like a a propaganda campaign, he calls it, to get us back into the reincarnation cycle. I think, I don't know if this is correct, but I, I think I heard that you uh, had studied some sort of Gnostic texts and things like that. I think that's sort of supported in, in some of that. What do you make of all that, the, the hellish experiences and the, and the notion that that maybe this is sort of like a, a soul trap of sorts and all that stuff is sort of to like lead you back in? Well, I think it's important to point out that the vast majority of reported near-death experiences are very positive, uh, very, very enlightening. And then if you're getting into that territory of the hellish or dark mm -hmm. uh, NDE, uh, you're probably talking around 3 to 5% of reported cases out there. Now, you can argue that all NDEs are underreported. People are, you know, they think, oh my gosh, if I tell people about this, they'll think I've gone crazy. <laughs> uh, so they don't want to share it. Uh, in fact, more than half of NDEers say they're, they don't want to share their experience because they're worried they'll be labeled crazy. Uh, but I think an important statement to make about even the hellish NDEs lead to very positive transformations. Uh, people come away realizing that there is a beautiful force of love at the core of the universe that has tremendous power. They come away, I think, often from, uh, you know, if you've handed out a lot of pain and suffering to others in your life, your life review is going to be unpleasant. Uh, it's one of the great, that's the reason the life review serves so well as kind of a course correction to kind of nudge us gently towards that pathway of love, kindness, compassion, and mercy. Um, but the ultimately the message of ease is really one very positive, as I said, more than 90% of NDEers come away believing that there is some loving, benevolent force at the core of the universe, uh, and they won't necessarily try and label it. But if they had prior religious beliefs, they might call that God or Allah, uh, whatever, you know, they might mm -hmm. uh, attach that label to it. Uh, and that's one thing I've found in, in discussions with many near-death experiencers is the content of the experience does not depend on your prior religious beliefs. 
I mean, I, I've been brought up in a Methodist church, had fairly conventional Methodist beliefs, and yet I was exposed to a oneness with God that was absolutely profound and completely defied anything I was ever taught in church. Likewise, I was shown in that Indra's net vision, a beautiful and absolutely concrete mode of, of interpreting reincarnation uh, as a positive form of growth and transformation and evolution, simply that one cannot become one with the divine in one incarnation. It takes multiple incarnations to do that, to move up that ladder and to gain that kind of, uh, uh, you know, perfection like uh, 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 Mother Teresa or, uh, you know, any, any saint out there, uh, you know, they, they don't have to come back. And yet, uh, for example, I think the Dalai Lama is an example of a soul that doesn't have to come back at all, and yet does uh, to help benefit the growth of kind of all of uh, sentience throughout the universe. So, so but the me, question is, really... sorry to interrupt, but the question is sort of like, why aren't we, if we are sort of individual sparks of, of God, then why why is it that we need to be perfected in the first place? I think that's the question that, that they're asking, right? I would say it's because that that God force or God mind loves the experience of going through this growth. In other words, it's not as if that God mind has the ultimate answer. The God mind is experiencing uh, this kind of transformation that comes from progressive uh, kind of growth and understanding that we evolve into uh, over over you know swathes of deep time. Uh, that I was talking about earlier, that deep time allows you to kind of see the evolution of a soul and the, the transformation and metamorphosis of all of consciousness. But to me, it all has a very kind of positive flavor uh, when you realize this kind of connectedness, uh, realize uh, that this word spirituality can easily be simplified into just a notion of connection with others. And that one mind hypothesis is very strong in the modern uh, science of consciousness literature. Um, and, and then also the notion of kind of shared meaning and purpose. To me, spirituality just needs those very simple ingredients of connection through mind and meaning and purpose uh, as kind of shared concepts of growth uh, to really explain so much more about what we're going through uh, and why there's even programmed forgetting, because that's a huge part of it. Yeah. You know, if you talk to, for example, the reincarnation data that I did not know about prior to my coma, but have learned a lot about since then, uh, is largely based at the University of Virginia over the last six decades. People can go to uvadops.org to learn a lot more. But Dr. Ian Stevenson, Dr. Jim Tucker, who have headed up those studies, have made it very clear that you have to ask children about these past lives before age six or seven. Because after that, the memories start to get covered over. And it's unusual for people to harbor these memories of past lives and between lives beyond age seven or eight. Um, some people do, and they have a very thin veil, and often they become psychic mediums and other things like that. Um, but most of us, it's covered over. And I think that's what gives us skin in the game, <clears throat> the kind of buy-in of our uh, culture to support you know, birth to death. This is my incarnation this is my life and and to lead it with that kind of seriousness but we forget that we've had previous lifetimes and that those have contributed to what is going on in this lifetime that's the whole world of transpersonal psychology in that website you, you mentioned um 
we can read more about the the past memories in children because I was going to ask you about that. That's very fascinating to me. Yeah, at uvadops.org, you'll find a lot of papers. Uh, you have uh, active links to many of them. Uh, but essentially, uh, since the 1960s, they've studied more than uh, 2,700 cases of past life memories in children uh, that suggested reincarnation. And 1,700 of those cases are what are called solved. That is, they actually found the person who lived that life that is described by the child. Now, of course, many of those cases came up before the age of the internet, back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. So they so they found the people that they were talking about in these cases? Well, it's, it's absolutely astonishing. The details um, that is uncovered, people's names, you know, relationships, uh, actions. Uh, it's, it turns out that in a, a lot of that literature, about 70% of the cases died by violence or died very suddenly uh, mm -hmm. in the previous lifetime. And you can imagine how that would leave some emotional baggage that is then, you know, permitted to go through into the next lifetime. But if you want, uh, there's one particular story in the American literature that is really profound. It was vetted completely by Dr. Jim Tucker, who's the head of that research now at the University of Virginia. And that story is of a reincarnated World War II fighter pilot. Uh, it's a book called Soul, S-O-U-L, Survivor. Uh, it's by Bruce and Andrea Leininger. It's about their son, James Leininger. Uh, and if you read that book, you'll see the kind of quality of experience and the amount of detail that comes through um, in, in these um, past life memories. And it's truly just absolutely shocking. Once you realize that Ian Stevenson and Jim Tucker are very skeptical scientific investigators that do a good job of vetting these cases to make sure people are not fooling themselves, to make sure that everything is lining up as they present the story, uh, that's what these investigators do. They're very good at that. And that the University of Virginia has come a long way in consolidating information, not just from past life memories and children indicative of reincarnation, but also from near-death experiences through Dr. Bruce Grayson and through the entire uh, parapsychological evidence of non-local consciousness through the work of Dr. Ed Kelly. Uh, and, and in that process, Ed Kelly has edited three very powerful scientific books supporting all this. These are not for the uh, the armchair enthusiasts, but for those who are deeply interested in the science of after death and reincarnation. I would highly recommend Ed Kelly's books, Irreducible Mind, Beyond Physicalism, and his third book of Consciousness Unbound. The three of them are an absolutely uh, stellar scientific example of the modern science of consciousness and where it's headed. Well, I'm going to have a lot more books after this, and I'm already way behind on my on my reading list, but that sounds amazing. Um, so, okay, so just to sort of wrap this up, uh, this is this is on the point of of sort of materialist science. Um, I really wanted to ask you about since you have a background as an allopathic doctor. Um, a lot of our my show uh, deals with, or at least started with, uh, um, discussions on terrain theory. And as someone who has previously flipped your your paradigm, I was wondering if you were uh, at all uh, 
interested in that, have heard of it, or you know, are willing uh, to to flip any more paradigms in in the sort of material science view uh, of uh, bacteria being the cause of disease. And in terrain theory, they believe that it is actually a response uh, to to toxicity. And uh, you can read about people like uh, Antoine Bechamp and Claude Bernard, who were contemporaries of of Louis Pasteur, and so on and so forth. So I wondered what you're if you had ever heard about that or uh, interested in it. Well, I'm I'm interested because I'm interested in all things about healing, but I I really uh, cannot claim to have heard or thought about terrain theory at all. So uh, I'm a newbie on that one. I'll have to do some homework. Well, since you turned me on to so many great books, I I wanted to to mention it because uh, you know I was thinking about it listening to you, you know, because you had this bacterial encephalitis, all, all this stuff, and um, you know you could really uncover and unlock a lot of really amazing secrets when you when you sort of uh figure out how they inverted the body how the body works it's you know there's this really like attack model that they implemented early on and uh so i would love i would love to if you decide to look into it i would love to hear your perspectives on it um later All right. on well um if, if there are any specific resources you can send me i would start with them otherwise i would just google it and pursue what i find yeah, be careful with Google, but uh, I'll I could definitely send oh, you know, some stuff. Know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I'll definitely send you some stuff. Um, right. So awesome. Well, thank you so much. That was uh, uh you know, amazing, and I think uh, it it gives you a lot to to think about. So I want to thank you for for chatting with me and uh, where let people know where they can uh, where they can follow you and and continue on with your work. Right. Well, people can certainly follow me at eben e b e n alexander dot com. It has a, a very good reading list uh, with a lot of hot links to active scientific papers. It's all categorized. Also an FAQ that's very important uh, uh, for more deeply understanding my story and, and some blog postings. Uh, in addition, for people who want to try a powerful form of meditation, I would offer sacredacoustics.com. And if you go to, that's the website of my partner and co-author of Living in a Mindful Universe, Karen Newell. And it's all self-explanatory. If you go there and visit her site, explore it, listen to those tones through headphones, and you'll start seeing what all this excitement is about. In addition, I would uh, steer people uh, to unitedinhopeandhealing.com. Uh, and that is a set of resources that Karen and I have generated, uh, some of them at no charge. Uh, and uh, for example, there's a whole set of interviews that we did during a year and a half of the pandemic every two weeks with people who we would have been seeing at conferences, you know, thought leaders, global thought leaders on consciousness, uh, experiencers, et cetera. But we did all that as a set of interviews that are right there in unitedinhopeandhealing.com uh, as our other avenues. If you go there, you'll see what I mean. Uh, I think it's important for people to understand this revolution is happening. It is one that will bring a lot more kind of optimism and harmony to this world a lot more people taking care of people because that's what fits together best with this uh, kind of deep understanding of the primacy of mind. Uh, and really the tip of the spear of near-death experiences is really instructing us uh, of the power of unconditional love, kindness, mercy, acceptance, and forgiveness in making our lives far better uh, and making this world a far better place. So thank you, Patrick, for getting this out to the world. I'd love to talk again sometime. My pleasure. Yeah, I would love that very much. Thank you again, uh, Evan. Thank you so much.